Welcome back to the Heresy is Good podcast. My name is Teddy Lee Brown, and I'm a heretic. Today, we are going to explore why and how modern evangelicals got stuck in a first century time loop. To best understand how it happened, we have to examine their relationship with the Bible. By and large, conservative Christians play Sunday school religion with their Bibles. They are protected and shielded like children by their teachers and taught exactly what to believe about the Bible. It is the unerring word of God, straight from God's lips to the ears of his prophets. And that is all they need to know. They look up to their spiritual leaders like a four-year-old with a crush on their Sunday school teacher, listening and believing every word. Critical thinking is forbidden. The Bible is only discussed in the most positive light possible. Never, never addressed is the fact that the Bible has been used as a weapon of mass destruction against innocents, including their fellow Christians, from the earliest days to the present. For the most part, they collectively have no sincere interest in learning from the mistakes of the past, in part because they don't even know or believe that they exist. Their leaders say absolutely nothing about the internecine conflicts that savaged the Christian faith since its conception. Their audiences are only exposed to the most idealized version of first century Christianity. Then they skip the rest of history to take their place in the present as fundamentalist heroes, ushering in first century Christianity like never before, as if nothing else ever took place between here and the first century. Whether evangelicals are aware of it or not, their mission to reboot Christianity itself is an admission on their part that the faith must have went horribly wrong somewhere along the way and needed to be started over again. But presently, they seem more determined than ever to make all the same mistakes their ancestors did. The vast majority of present-day evangelicals have no idea in how the Bible was put together. Basking in their Sunday school naivete, most don't even know that the Gospels weren't written by any of the original disciples of Jesus Christ, or wonder why. They don't know that the first Gospel written, the Book of Mark, wasn't written until over 40 years after Jesus' death and that the original ending was changed in later versions. The original mark ended with women discovering Jesus' empty tomb, then fleeing in fear, not knowing or understanding what happened. But most notably, Mark ended with no post-resurrection appearances by Jesus. Scholars have long considered the Book of Mark the most reliable of the Gospels, in many ways because it was written first and uninfluenced by the others to follow. Obviously, that fact raises some interesting questions about its content and its original ending and why it would later be changed. Why no post-resurrection appearances? 
The said appearances happened as they were reported to have happened in later tags. Why did the unknown author of the book of Mark not include the big finale? You would think that if you were dedicated enough to write a book to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah, that you would have stuck the landing and mentioned that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that he talked to and instructed people after his resurrection. Wouldn't that have strengthened your case? Remember, we are talking about texts written 40 years after Jesus' death. Certainly, there was enough time to gather the facts and all relevant testimony. If what was later reported to happen happened, wouldn't such faith-inspiring post-resurrection testimonies be passed along with the gospel itself, like it would be in later texts? Why wouldn't the well-informed author of Mark, who had the wherewithal to write the first gospel, include said appearances to enhance and prove his case? He didn't and couldn't have known that anyone else was ever going to write any other Gospels, why not complete the story for the historical record and write about the miraculous post-resurrection appearances and present it as proof of Jesus' divinity like the other Gospels did? Wasn't that the whole point of writing the book in the first place? A new ending was added for Mark in the second century to compensate for the lack of post-resurrection accounts and make its conclusion more compatible with the other versions of the Gospels written in the years that followed, each unique in its own way. It's not only a safe bet that most evangelicals don't know about the original ending of the Book of Mark. It's a safe bet they don't want to know. When it comes to Scripture, they don't want to know how the sausage is made. They don't want to know about all the inconsistencies, contradictions, false narratives, or man's hand in writing and editing God's book. It is much easier for them to accept by faith that God supernaturally supervised scripture production and everything turned out tasty and perfect. The book of Mark was written around 70 AD just after the failure of a bloody, disastrous revolt against the Romans in Jerusalem. Believing the time for their deliverance from Roman occupation had finally come, Jews, including some believers of Jesus, launched a revolt they believed would trigger the intervention of a Messiah, leading to a supernatural war and the ultimate triumph of good over evil and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Tragically for them, it didn't work out that way. The Romans slaughtered them by the tens of thousands and looted and destroyed the great temple of Jerusalem along with the rest of the city. Broken-hearted survivors who were taught and believed in Jesus' imminent return and intervention were forced to reevaluate their beliefs. For the first time, they began to understand that Jesus wasn't coming back in their lifetime, and that challenged their faith. Personally, I think the original ending of the book of Mark perfectly represented the existential angst of believers at the time. 
the book of Mark wasn't finished because the story hadn't finished the way it was supposed to. The job was only half done at best, and nobody knew how it was going to end. The reason the first gospel wasn't written until 40 years after Jesus' death was because believers were taught that Jesus would return and establish God's kingdom in their lifetime. There was no reason to document things for later generations because Jesus would establish God's kingdom on earth before they were even born. Things didn't have to start getting documented until believers realized their generation was passing away and that they might be gone entirely before Christ's return. The oldest text of the New Testament, the first epistle to the Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, was a letter written about 20 years before the book of Mark to specifically address believers' fears of them dying before Jesus' return. I would like to share and discuss some excerpts with you from a Cliff Notes article about 1 Thessalonians. The first excerpt reads, quote, The main purpose of Paul's letter is to deal with a special problem that developed after Paul left the city. Paul shared with Christians at Thessalonica his belief that the end of the age would come in the very near future. In part, an inheritance from Jewish apocalypticism, this belief held that the messianic kingdom would be ushered in by a sudden catastrophic event at which time the heavenly Messiah would descend on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When the first Christians accepted the idea that the man who had died on the cross was the real Messiah, they were convinced that he must return to earth to complete the work that he had begun. The manner of his second coming was conceived in accordance with the apocalyptic conceptions. This belief was common among early Christians, and Paul accepted it along with the rest. Although the Christians were quite insistent that no one knew the exact time when the second coming would take place, they felt sure that it would occur during the lifetime of those who were then members of the Christian community. End quote. Now, remember, from the very beginning, the biggest struggle for someone like Paul was trying to convince his fellow Jews that Jesus really was the long-promised Messiah because Jesus didn't fulfill Jewish apocalyptic prophecies and raise the dead and establish God's kingdom right then and there, which non-believing Jews believed proved Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And if Jesus didn't quickly return and finish the job, they would be proven right. While Paul and friends zealously argued he would soon return and fulfill all the prophecies. Let's go back to the text. Quote, After Paul left Thessalonica, some of the people who belonged to the church died. Because Jesus had not returned, Serious doubts arose in the minds of those Thessalonians who were still living, 
for they had been led to believe that Jesus the Messiah would return before any of them died. As they saw it, Paul was mistaken on this point, which then caused them to wonder whether he might also be mistaken on other points as well. Obviously, an explanation of some kind was in order, and this situation, more than any other single factor, prompted the writing of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. End quote. 2,000 years later, we can clearly see that those Thessalonians who feared Paul might be wrong about Jesus' imminent return were right. And they were also right to be concerned about what else Paul might be mistaken about because of the assumptions he made and the conclusions he drew. He certainly had no idea that it would be at least 2,000 years before Jesus would return. And if he was so out of the loop on that and had it so wrong, how can we trust the rest of what he said would happen to happen? But no matter how many times modern evangelicals read their Bible, they move the goalposts back so far that Paul is never wrong about anything. Let's return to an excerpt that describes what else Paul promised the Thessalonians. Quote, In his statement regarding Jesus' second coming, Paul says that he has in no way abandoned his faith that the return of Jesus to this earth will take place in the near future. Concerning those who died or who might die before Jesus returns, he states that they will be raised from the dead and will share equally with those who are still living at the time. Quote, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. End quote. To this statement, Paul adds, quote, After that, we who are still alive and are left would be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. End quote. The letter closes with a reminder that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. No one knows just when it will come, but all are admonished to live in such a way that they will be ready for it at any moment. End quote. Even if you've never read the Bible before, that text may sound familiar because it is presently used by evangelicals as pop culture prophecy of a upcoming rapture, when Christians will be snatched up to join Jesus for the second coming. It doesn't occur to them that Paul could be as misinformed about that as much as he was about the timing of Christ's return. They would certainly never believe that Paul, in essence, plagiarized Jewish apocalyptic scripture and was guilty of trying to pound a square peg into a round hole to explain things and doubts away. Paul followed up the first letter with a second letter that explained what to expect leading up to Jesus' return. Quote, Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians is in one sense a follow-up to the first letter. 
Evidently, the first letter was well received. People were satisfied with Paul's explanation concerning those who died and were ready and willing to suffer persecution if need be in order to remain true to the gospel that Paul preached. However, some members of the Christian community were so overly zealous about Paul's teachings that the end of the age was near at hand that they stopped making any plans for the future. Indeed, some of them stopped doing any work at all, believing that in this way they were demonstrating their faith in the nearness of the great event. Those who did not work were a burden to those who did work, and this situation constituted a new problem. Paul addresses this concern in his second letter. After commending the Thessalonians for their loyalty and assuring them that God will deal justly with their persecutors, Paul proceeds to the main point of the letter. Although the coming day of the Lord is near, it is not as close as some people think. Concerning a report that had circulated among the people stating that the day had already come, Paul tells the Thessalonians not to be deceived on this matter, for the day of the Lord will not arrive until after certain events have taken place, and these events have not occurred yet. The specific events to which Paul refers concern the coming of an Antichrist, someone in whom the power of Satan has become incarnate and who will establish himself in the temple at Jerusalem, working with signs and wonders to deceive people. The basis for Paul's statement along this line is found in the Jewish apocalyptic writings, which were fairly well known to him. Concerning the coming of this lawless Antichrist, Paul says that the Antichrist's activities are already in operation and would be carried out more fully, except that he is now being restrained. In due time, the Antichrist will be revealed and, quote, Lord Jesus will overthrow the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming, end quote. The letter closes with Paul encouraging the Thessalonians to continue their regular lines of work and not to wait in idleness for the return of Jesus. Now, you probably have heard plenty about the Antichrist from evangelicals, directly or indirectly, but you definitely never heard them admit that their revered Apostle Paul believed that the Antichrist had already arrived in his lifetime. Paul also believed that the Antichrist would establish himself in the Temple of Jerusalem, long considered the literal home of God on earth, the same temple that would be destroyed a few years after Paul's death at the conclusion of the first revolt against the Romans in 70 AD. The temple was never rebuilt, but yet evangelicals still believe in Paul's prophecies as much as he did. And you can bet that no one regrets that more than the Apostle Paul himself. He had no way of knowing his letters would end up canonized in a sacred text like the Bible and he certainly didn't intentionally mislead the Thessalonians or every generation since. 
he had immersed himself in Jewish apocalyptic writings in his attempt to make sense of what was happening and presented his theory. That doesn't undo all the other good he did. But as things turned out, it was just speculation. Paul didn't know any more about the return of Jesus than we do. And it's time for evangelicals to stop fooling themselves and pretending that he did and accept Paul for the human being he was. The book of Mark was written after the revolt that led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. When the destruction of the temple didn't provoke the Messiah to intervene, believers were heartbroken and began reevaluating the beliefs that got them there. That region had been Messiah-happy long before Jesus, and continued to be afterwards when others promised to do what Jesus didn't, but couldn't. First-century Jews and Christians that believed in Jesus had to decide whether their faith was still legitimate. After all, he did not return when they were told he said he would. He didn't fulfill all the old prophecies or fight alongside them during the revolt. He did not change their lives by establishing God's kingdom on earth in their lifetimes. Is it any wonder why the book of Mark originally ended like it did, with an empty tomb and no post-resurrection appearances? A faith in limbo? Modern evangelicals are stuck in a first-century time warp because they're too afraid to do what their first-century ancestors had to do except that Jesus is not coming back in their lifetimes and that they have built much of what they've come to believe on bad information. This isn't about Jesus. This is about what some people believe in the name of Jesus. Regrettably, Jesus didn't write any letters or gospels detailing exactly what he did or didn't say. Instead, We've been dependent on unknown authors who weren't witnesses to the events they report to document. The portrait of Jesus they paint is erratic. One minute he's a hellfire apocalyptic preacher, the next the most loving, compassionate, tolerant man that ever lived. I have as much respect for much of what Jesus had to say as anybody. But I have no doubt that some of the words said to come from his mouth were put there by apocalyptic zealots for their own purposes. Did Jesus tell his followers and disciples that he would return in their lifetime like he was reported to have done repeatedly? Was he mistaken? Did he lie? Or did someone misrepresent him? Did they misunderstand and misrepresent him as an apocalyptic messiah instead of the kind of messiah he really was because their old faith predisposed them to do so? If first century believers weren't capable of enduring and recovering from the hardships, heartbreak, and trauma of false expectations, Christianity would not have survived the first century. It's time for present-day evangelicals to do the same. Even if they've got the Jesus part right, it doesn't mean they're not making a ton of mistakes 
and misrepresenting Jesus. Ask Paul. He spent his life frantically telling believers and unbelievers alike of Christ's imminent return. It's been 2,000 years. Paul's still chuckling and shaking his head in disgust over that one. Every generation of believers since Paul has had people who believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetimes because of what Paul wrote. They were wrong. They, like Paul, had to meet Jesus the old-fashioned way. They died. The evangelical right has been reeling for years from the trauma of false expectations. It began peaking during the Obama administration when evangelicals felt that they had lost the culture wars and that a multi-generational effort to Christianize the nation had become a lost cause. Some, believing their spiritual life's work was down the drain, were bitterly disappointed that things did not turn out the way that they were told they would if they were faithful to their movement. They were sick and tired of spinning their wheels and getting nowhere. They felt the country was stolen from them, and they wanted revenge. Then came Trump, the chosen one, who would reward them for their loyalty and faithfulness and give them what they really wanted for once and for all, Christian nationalism. Believers showed the whole world their faith in action by being willing to believe and rationalize anything Trump did while singing his praises and waving a QAnon flag. They, as a movement, are as damaged, self-serving, and corrupt as their worshipped idol. And it's all because they won't move on. And they won't move on because they can't move on until they can admit they've been wrong. And they don't believe they've been wrong about anything since the first century. My name is Teddy Lee Brown, and I am proud to be a heretic. And so should you. Check us out at heresyisgood.com. All merchandise available supports this podcast. And please, visit our page at Patreon. Your support will be appreciated. Thank you.